This is the Education Gadfly Show. All of a sudden, if we put in incomplete or zero, it would just autofill in 50%. The worst way to go about this. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Mr. Daniel Buck. Dan, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. He has become a regular. Dan is a Fordham Senior Visiting Fellow, meaning that he writes for us on our blog and in the Education Gadfly. Uh, you know, until very recently, he was an English teacher at Holy Spirit Middle School in Appleton, Wisconsin. But we have caught Dan in the middle of a move, moving back home to Milwaukee. So heading to a new school as well. Yes. As I was telling you guys, I quite literally about 30 minutes ago was unloading a car full of stuff. Uh, and now I'm sitting here trying to organize my thoughts and talk about education, but I'll be at a Hope Prima in Milwaukee, Wisconsin now. Great. Very good. All right. Well, Dan, really appreciate you doing this, especially in the middle of a move. Uh, those of us that have been through that before, remember, it's that is a good not, excuse to sit down. It is not <laughs> easy, especially with small children uh, around. Uh-huh. My, my memory from, I guess it was now 11 years ago, was, uh, in, and I had a couple of small kids while we moved just around the Beltway here in D.C., and the very first thing I did was back the U-Haul right into the new house. <laughs> so, and thankfully, it was not a bad way. It was just like belt, it just like dented the uh, gutter a little bit. Uh-huh. That gutter remained dented for a long time, too. Let me yeah. But, uh, that, I christened it. Uh, they, it's like rain it's on It's for memories. Day. That's why you left it. Good luck. Yeah. So, yeah, try not to do that. Well, really excited to have you on, Dan. I uh, always enjoy our conversations. And we're going to talk about an issue that's one of those issues where if, if you're not a teacher like you are, or maybe a parent, maybe it just hasn't been on your radar screen, but it's actually a big deal. Uh, and it's the kind of stuff that you don't see much in the press. I am talking about no zeros grading policy. So let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Dan. So you recently wrote about this. uh, And then Doug Reeves, who is uh, one of the the policy analysts, former educator, uh, most uh, associated with this idea. He promoted it in a book and has uh, written about it since then. Uh, It wrote back and then you responded. So we've had a nice debate about that. And the, the basic idea here is that some schools have told teachers, you can't give a lower grade than a 50. In other words, you cannot give a zero on an assignment, even if kids, uh, you know, completely bomb the test, or if they just don't show up for the test, or if they just blow off the assignment, uh, they can only get a 50 with the notion that if you do the math, uh, because of the way our grading scales work, usually with a 90, 80, 70, 60 for ABCD, you give that zero, it's so much further away from those other point values that it can really tank a kid's uh, grade. Uh, you worry, though, about the impact uh, that that has in the classroom. So tell us, what's what's the concern? I am worried, and there's at least some anecdotal evidence, that this no zero grading policy isn't going to motivate kids to try and save their grades uh, at the end of the semester, but it's actually going to demotivate a lot of students. Um, you know, that zero weighs very heavily on your final grade in any class. And if I give a student a zero, every time they open up, you know, whatever the the grading software is, it's a reminder that they're missing this work or that they tank this test. And they come to me uh, during recess, during lunch, before school, after school for extra tutoring, trying to do test corrections, any kind of makeup work that they can do. That zero 
because it is kind of punitive, it is a consequence for completely unfinished work, it motivates students into trying to correct it. But if you just give them a 50% instead, uh, I worry that more students are going to accept you know, a mediocre grade. They'll, I, I have a C, right? I'm passing, it's fine. I don't need to actually uh, make up this work or redo that essay or anything like that. Um, and that seems to be, again, anecdotally, there's not a lot of research into this that I've found that I'm aware of that anyone has pointed to through this debate. Uh, so it's all kind of speculation. But again, the anecdotes, the stories of teachers that have done this or districts that have done it, uh, it doesn't motivate the students that are failing, but it tends to bring down formerly high achieving, you know, A, B students who just accept the C instead. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is interesting on so many different levels. I mean, first of all, we are talking about motivation here. And, and Doug and others have sometimes argued that, well, if a kid gets a zero, then right, as you said, they're demotivated for the rest of the semester, because no matter what they do, maybe they can't bring their grade up to a D or to something useful. It is interesting. I mean, there's certainly quarters uh, out there, the Alfie Cohn wing of education that argues that, well, you know, using anything like grades to try to motivate kids is wrongheaded you know, because it's all supposed to be about intrinsic motivation, <laughs> which I was like, I don't know what world or what planet Alfie Cohn is living on, right? But we're talking about, say, middle schoolers, high schoolers, teenagers, adolescents. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, the ones I know real well, I love them to death, my boys, but, you know, they they are sometimes internally, intrinsically motivated to learn something. My older son loves reading history. That's great. But other times, uh, you know, his time is scarce. And is he going to use that to, uh, you know, do something like play video games or go to the pool? Or is he going to actually put in the work to, to get that grade up? I mean, uh, so it is, I assume your experience that motivation is is an important issue when you're talking about uh, the kids that you've worked with. Well, yeah. And there's, I don't understand why extrinsic extrinsic motivation is necessarily a dirty word. Yeah. You know, we don't want to motivate people only through punishment and consequence, but like you, I have a daughter. Uh, If I only let her do, she's just a little over one. If I only let her do what she was intrinsically motivated to do, she would run into traffic and only eat cookies. Yeah. You know, there's some amount of external motivation as adults that we can encourage kids in the right direction. uh, And that fear of an F isn't the only motivator in my class, right? I'm getting students excited for things. Um, I'm all sorts of class activities, letting them act things out, uh, fun projects at the end of units, uh, discussions, getting them interested in the content. There's all sorts of intrinsic motivation that I can work into my classroom. But that extrinsic motivation of the grade mm-hmm. is part of the whole package. And if you're getting rid of that, you know, you're getting rid of one of many motivators in the classroom and you're just kind of getting, you're taking away a tool, yeah. you know, it's like take it a, a mechanic and you're just taking away his wrench. And it's like, you don't get to use that one anymore. It's like, well, but it's not the only tool that I need, but it is a tool that I can use. Sometimes it doesn't motivate everyone. The wrench isn't perfect for every project that you're working on, but that grade, especially the zero or the a, you know, I, gosh, when you give kids an a on their essays, they're just beaming with pride um, these aren't bad things. These shouldn't be considered dirty words or have a negative connotation to them. Well, and we know, we've known forever, effort matters. You've got to put effort in. We saw this with the pandemic, all these kids doing remote learning at home. Uh, you know, lots of places, lots of teachers, they tried their hardest to make it work. 
uh, you know, for some kids, it was a good fit, but for most kids, it was not. And it, part of it, it was that it was really hard to get kids to put in the effort. Right. I mean, uh, it's a lot easier. You're, you're on a screen. It was pretty easy for kids to, especially if they weren't required to have their video on, to just be playing video games instead of listening. Uh, and, and there's this magic that happens, I feel like, when a teacher creates a culture in a classroom when where most kids, and not all kids, go home and actually do their homework uh, and put in that effort that's critical to learning. When they actually study for a test, I mean, that's it. That's gold. That's what you need. Uh, and And it's not an easy thing to do necessarily, you know, maybe when they're seven and, and most kids want to, are eager to please, not when they're 17, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and so, uh, you know, that that piece is crazy. Now, I guess one thing though is, it, it, the other piece that, that comes into this is around teacher discretion. You know, you hear about these school districts, my kids go to one in Montgomery County, Maryland, where there's a countywide policy, no zeros. Right. So even if the teacher wants to use a zero in a given case because they think they need to motivate the kid, they're not allowed. Mm-hmm. I assume that's worse than saying to teachers, hey, you decide, you know, uh, you might think about giving a 50, you know, because of the math, you know, uh, depending on the situation. But if you have a situation where you really feel like a zero for a, an assignment that wasn't put in, that's the best thing. We trust you. Uh, is is that fair? Or do you kind of need a consistent grading for for grades to be valid and reliable? Well, that's really the thesis of my the two pieces now that I've written on this for Fordham. I am open to the idea of reapportioning grading scales. You know, Douglas Reeves recommends a zero to four scale, so kind of each letter grade or number has an equal weight to it. I'm open to that idea. You know, try it in a few districts, and if it works, and if there's a little bit of benefit around the margins, fine. We can make that more normal. My problem with all of these policies that are becoming more popular is they're done um, without much evidence, without much forethought, without teacher buy-in, without consulting parents, without asking the students. The district that I used to be in two districts ago was moving towards this before the pandemic, and I remember they in our software, just all of a sudden, if we put in incomplete or zero, it would just autofill in with 50%. Wow. And that is the worst possible way to go about doing any of this. Mm -hmm. I'm open to reconsidering these things, but just mainstreaming this idea and almost at times forcing it on teachers, is the worst of all the possible worlds. We're not sticking with the standard grade. We're not with forethought and insight and, you know, discussion, changing things around. We're just kind of jumping straight into it. Yes, it's it's, yeah. it's, kind of, it's making a lot of teachers angry, too. That was the response in my district. I remember mm-hmm. somebody saw it in a staff meeting and raised their hand. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Like a lot of teachers aren't, aren't on board with this either. Yeah, no, of course. And so, right. Instead of making this one change and leaving everything else the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and frankly, grading is dysfunctional. I mean, we know there's great inflation. It isn't consistent between the schools or even between teachers within the same school. I mean, you know, teachers don't get a lot of training on this. Like, how are you supposed to do grading? I mean, why do we have this grading scale that's sort of, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90? That's not in law anywhere, I don't think, or most places, right? It's just it's just habit and custom. Uh, so if we're going to rethink it, rethink it completely rather than just make this one change uh, that throws a wrench into the system. All right. Well, hey, let's let you get back to moving. <laughs> get, Thank uh, you. <laughs> and uh, maybe next time we have a conversation, you won't be in the middle of a, a major life event like that. But thanks for being on the show again. So Dan Buck, one of our great senior visiting fellows here at Fordham. 
Uh, Dan, hope you have a great rest of the summer. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on again. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, so this this big debate about zeros and grading. Do, do you remember? Would you give oh, kids a zero I on assignment? Do. I do remember that, and I would. But it's very true that it creates a lot of havoc um, because in many cases, they are not going to be able to claw themselves back. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's not something I think teachers do lightly, but it has a lot to do with the school policies, you know? And yeah. now it seems like they're becoming more active about, you know, whether we're uh, teachers are allowed to award those zeros. Yeah. Yeah. Now it, it's look, I mean, the math, I understand, you know, as we kept talking about that, it is true. Just mathematically zero is a long yeah. way from 60, yes. Yes. but gosh, taking another tool away from teachers to motivate kids, another something that seems like a good idea. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's true. It's true. And I think it's important that teachers have that tool and, I'm with you. You're not going to get an argument for me. Yeah, there's, you know, there there are things that teachers can do. You know, I was I was a fan of letting them, um, you know, read if they were right at the passing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would let them. You know, if they really wanted to, um, I'd let them try again to replace the grade if it was going to prevent them from graduating. So yeah. Yeah. You, know, you got to take it by on yeah. a case by case basis. Yeah, no, that that seems reasonable. All right. Well, you know what else is reasonable? is uh, looking at education research for guidance on our schools. Yes. So <laughs> what you got you for You got week? it. We got a new study uh, conducted by Tim Sass and colleagues that examines whether eliminating high stakes testing impacts teacher turnover. Mm. In this case, we're talking about switching schools or exiting schools. And they look at the distribution of teachers across grades and schools. I like this one because typically we think about adding testing requirements and where that Mm -hmm. drives teachers away or pushes them to change to untested grades. Uh, But in this case, we're turning the question around to see if eliminating some of the testing requirements impacts turnover or mobility. Just a little different way of looking at the same question. (laughs) Well, it's also because in more recent uh, years, we've been doing more removing of tests than adding. Right. That's what we're dealing with in today's reality. Right. So analysts take advantage of several changing changes in testing policy in Georgia whereby some tests were eliminated in certain grade levels. Specifically, they examined the impact of stopping testing in grades one and two. My grades one and two was already occurring in Georgia. I don't know if you knew mm. that or not. God bless um, them. Okay. Anyway, they stopped that in 2010-11, and then they scaled back science and social studies testing in 2017 to grades five and eight only, where before mm. it had been three through eight. So they're looking at elementary teachers in grades one one through five who were affected by that 2011 testing testing change if they were, again, teaching in grades one and two where the testing was removed. And then they're looking at middle school teachers in grades six through eight who were affected by that 2017 change if they were teaching science or social studies in grades six or seven because, again, that's where the testing was removed in those grades. All right. So it's specifically targeted to elementary and middle school where uh, tests were removed. Uh, they use a difference in differences design to assess the impact um, of this presumably exogenous change in tested grades and subjects over time. They're looking at 2007 through 2018. And then there's this discussion about there was really no other significant educational policy changes in Georgia that coincide with these testing changes. So they really do think they're looking at the impact of this change. 
Uh, so again, just make sure you got it. They're comparing changes in mobility over time and grades and subjects, the discontinued testing versus grades and subjects that were always tested. All right. Got it. Uh, they control for a slew of teacher characteristics. Oh, man, it's just a really long list. Race, gender, teaching experience, and so on. And they've got a bunch of school level student body characteristics they're controlling for. Um, again, school level characteristics, including the student body enrollment proportion of FRL, ELL students, and so on. All right. On the descriptive side, they do not see any differences in attrition within school grade changes or inter-school mobility trends across grades before and after the testing requirements changed for grades one through two in 2011, nor differences in trends after the change in testing requirements for science and social studies teachers in grades six and seven. And then we get to the uh, difference in differences results and same pattern. Uh, they do not observe significant effects of eliminating testing in grades one and two mm -hmm. on the probability of leaving the profession, changing districts, changing mm -hmm. schools within a district, or changing grades within a school for teachers in grades one and two relative to grades three through five. That's what they were comparing it to. Nor did they find differential impacts by beginning versus experienced teachers. So they kind of looked at some heterogeneous impacts there, didn't find anything. And then they found the same pattern of no significant effects at the middle school level as well on all those various outcomes. Mm -hmm. so, in other words, uh, the removal of tests alone over time within an established accountability system. So in other words, when you have testing in place and then it's not in place, uh, showed that testing is not driving teachers out of the profession or significantly contributing to a shortage. Uh, said another way, reducing the amount of testing did not reduce teacher shortages, at least at the elementary and middle school levels. Boom. Well, there you go. I mean, and, and the, so the point is, this is a big nothing burger, as Checker would say, <laughs> uh, meaning that, yeah, I mean, this, this whole idea that testing was uh, a reason that teachers hated teaching and were leaving the profession. Not true, right? Right. No, I mean, gosh, they looked at this in multi multiple outcomes, multiple grades over time. I mean, I just kept thinking they were going to find something. They really didn't find any significant differences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you, well, how do you make sense of that? Gosh, I feel like I, I think it's overblown, right? I mm -hmm. mean, I, I really do. I think that if you're teaching and you, you know, you really enjoy your job, uh, like mm -hmm. most people, um, and you, you know, you realize that, you know, you don't have to teach the test, that you can teach kids uh, in, in an engaging manner and still teach them the content of the test, then the test alone, like they're saying, is not going to make you leave your job. It might be one thing about your job you don't like, mm -hmm. um, but it's not by itself going to drive you out of your job. I, I just don't think that's what happens in reality. There's a lot of things that can make you leave a teaching job, but by itself, I don't, I don't think this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, that that all makes sense to me. I mean, hey, I, I understand. Like, there, there was that moment when, you know, there was all the talk about teacher evaluation using tests to to measure teachers and, and maybe have high stakes attached to them. Didn't actually happen in very many places, right? Yeah, it did. Um, I can understand that that created a lot of fear and, and that that might have spooked some people. Uh, and and just you know that 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 was one thing, right? But mm -hmm. you know what what's happening now? You know where. We're in a moment where most of the accountability metrics have been removed when, uh, you know, at most we just have transparency related to these tests. And yes, it takes some time in the spring to stop and do these tests. And yes, sometimes uh, there are places that have 
teachers do test prep. Although again, you know, in the better generation of tests, the t- test prep doesn't work as well. Right. right. So, right. yeah. So it's, it's, it's not a big deal for better or for worse. Right. And <laughs> it's probably both why uh, it doesn't seem to be bothering teachers very much, but it also doesn't seem to be doing much in terms of driving better outcomes right. either. Right. And motivating. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. It, it, it goes both ways. You're right about that. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Hey, that is interesting. And some uh, certainly some rock star scholars involved in that one. Yes. Oh, man. The Georgia data. I wish I wish we could get into Georgia. I feel like that's mm-hmm. one of those states with great data sets. But um, again, uh, you don't see a ton of, of studies out of it. So I'm glad uh, Tim Sass mm-hmm. and colleagues are starting to churn some stuff out. All right. Good. Well, hey, Amber, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.